Well, this is an especially apt day to be thinking about our 16th president. 150 years ago today, Abraham Lincoln was at the Willard Hotel preparing for his first inauguration. Of course, the inauguration was the next day. So tomorrow, March 4th, will be that anniversary. Now, Lincoln did this, preparing for this inauguration, even as the nation seemed to be slipping into chaos. And you'll remember that seven states had already seceded from the Union by that date. Next day, of course, Lincoln stood on the steps of the unfinished Capitol and eloquently but futilely delivered words that reached back to the nation's founding in hopes of calming the political waters. Now, you all remember this, of course. He said, the mystic cords of memory which stretch from every battlefield and patriot grave to every loved heart and hearthstone all over our broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. And the man who put these timeless words on paper and delivered them has been studied more than perhaps any other figure in American history. So anytime there is new insight into Abraham Lincoln and the events surrounding the outbreak and ongoing um, progress of the Civil War, we should all take note. Now, luckily today, we have a speaker who will do just that for us. Dr. Daniel Crofts is a professor of history at the College of New Jersey. His books, including Reluctant Confederates, Upper South Unionists in the Secession Crisis, and Old Southampton, Politics and Society in a Virginia, country, Virginia County, 1834 to 69, which he wrote, and Cobb's Ordeal, The Diaries of a Virginia Farmer, 1842 through 72, which he edited, make Dr. Crofts one of the nation's leading scholars on the antebellum and Civil War eras. And now he turns his keen insight onto something that has stymied historians for years. The Diary of a Public Man, published anonymously in several installments in the North American Review in 1879, claimed to offer verbatim accounts of secret conversations with Abraham Lincoln, William Seward, and Stephen A. Douglas, among others, in the weeks just before the start of the Civil War. Now, despite repeated attempts to decipher the diary, historians never have been able to pinpoint its author or determine its authenticity. Part detective story, part biography, and part a detailed narrative of events in early 1861, Dan Croft's A Secession Crisis Enigma presents a compelling answer to an enduring mystery. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Dan Crofts, who will speak to us on A Secession Crisis Enigma, William Henry Hurlbert and the Diary of a Public Man. Thank you, Paul, for that generous introduction. Um, I'm very glad to be here today. Um, I first came down to the Virginia Historical Society in 1974. Um, in those days, Battle Abbey was a quiet place. Uh, an occasional visitor stopped by to inspect the uh, mammoth uh, Charles Hofbauer depictions of the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, a few researchers uh, toiled away in some nondescript rooms upstairs somewhere. Uh, but uh, not much uh, seemed to be going on here, and at least not much that had an outreach uh, to the broader public. Fast forward 40 years, and we find the Virginia Historical Society has become the model state historical society 
uh, in the entire country, uh, the envy of all the others, uh, both North and South. Its public outreach makes history come alive for more people than have, could possibly have been imagined uh, the first time I came down here back in the 1970s. And I encourage you, if you haven't yet, to make sure you check out this uh, splendid exhibit on Virginia and the Civil War. Uh, I spent a, a, a very rich hour in there before uh, uh, getting prepared to come down here and speak today. And this is a truly up-to-date, uh, multidimensional kind of introduction to the history of this state and its connection to the Civil War. Uh, it's about the men who fought. Uh, it's about the women. It's about the black people as well as the white people. Uh, it has some things that include Yankees. Um, it gets into the her terrible division of the state of Virginia. Um, it is a truly uh, unusual uh, and, and, and splendid exhibit. There is much here uh, that builds from the sort of things you might expect, a wonderful portrait of Jubal Early, uh, Stonewall Jackson's watch, uh, George Henry Thomas's sword, a subject of interest to me with my uh, work on Southampton County because unlike Robert E. Lee, George Henry Thomas uh, was a Virginian who stuck with the Union um, and estranged himself totally from uh, his family down there. I'm here today, uh, as Paul suggested, to talk about a mysterious diary and about the president who took office exactly 150 years ago, uh, starting tomorrow. Um, in the old days, before 1936, presidents were inaugurated on March 4 uh, instead of the more familiar uh, January 20, which has been the case uh, since FDR's uh, second inauguration. And so uh, we are now uh, right at the juncture uh, where Abraham Lincoln was to become president of the United States. The Mysterious Diary um, is a book, um, you see the cover of it here, uh, that I've written. I think the diary helps us to understand this key moment in Lincoln's presidency just as he took power. Um, and this whole subject of what was going on in the months between Lincoln's election as president in November and the start of the war in mid-April um, is a subject that I've been working on since I first came down here back in 1974. Uh, and there keeps uh, turning up to be new things to learn about it and it keeps me going. As Paul suggested, uh, the Diary of a Public Man was first published uh, back in 1879 in what was then a popular magazine called the North American Review. Uh, it's a big enough document that they took four separate installments uh, to publish it. Its entries are dated between December 28, 1860 and March 15, 1861. These are the desperate weeks just before the start of the war. The diary appeared to offer verbatim accounts penned by a longtime Washington insider of behind-the-scenes discussions at the very highest levels during the greatest crisis the country had yet faced. Its pithy quotations attributed to the key principals, uh, Stephen A. Douglas, uh, William H. Seward, and especially Abraham Lincoln, have become part of the folklore of American historical writing. Douglas, the leading Northern Democrat who narrowly defeated Lincoln in 1858 to retain his Senate seat, but who then lost to him in the 1860 presidential election, reached out to his former antagonist as the crisis deepened. Nothing better symbolized the rapport between the two Illinois rivals than an incident reported by the diarist on Inauguration Day, March 4, 1861. 
This is the east front of the US Capitol. The dome is not yet built. In fact, it's kind of a symbol of the fact that the American Union was still a work in progress. As Lincoln prepared to speak, he scarcely could find room for his hat on the miserable little rickety table that had been provided for the occasion. According to the diarist, Douglas reached forward, took Lincoln's hat with a smile, and held it during the delivery of the address. This spontaneous gesture, the diarist wrote, was a trifling act, but a symbolical one, and not to be forgotten. The diarist and Douglas both pinned their hopes for a peaceful settlement on William Henry Seward, who emerged as Lincoln's Secretary of State after having lost the Republican presidential nomination to him in 1860. And I will mention here parenthetically that the lovely words that uh, Paul reminded us of, of Lincoln's inaugural address, uh, the peroration at the end, the words are actually Seward's, uh, and this was part of an extremely important sort of backdoor rewriting of the inaugural address at the last minute uh, to make it a little bit more acceptable uh, to the anti-secession people in the Upper South uh, that Seward was in touch with. Um, Seward was an anti-slavery northerner for sure, but he attempted during the secession winter to find a middle ground that would preserve the peace and hold the Union together. He became, in the eyes of the diarist, the one man in whose ability and moderation the conservative people at the North have most confidence. From its first paragraph to its last, the diary of a public man recounts the twists and turns as two successive presidents, the repudiated James Buchanan and the untested Lincoln, attempted to figure out what to do about Fort Sumter, the besieged federal fortress located on an artificial island at the mouth of Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. The diary conveys a strong sense of on-the-spot immediacy reinforced by the diarist's excellent ear. He wrote as if he were seated next to the principals and holding an audio recorder. But, as Paul suggested, two key questions hang over this diary. Who wrote it, and was it genuine? The editor of the North American Review, in which it was first published, concealed the identity of the author, and historians have found it difficult to crack the secret. An influential reference work singles out the diary for presenting the most gigantic problem of uncertain authorship in American historical writing. The diary, if genuine, is of particular interest because it sheds light on fateful decisions Lincoln made during these five months between his election as president in November and the start of the Civil War in mid-April. So to get the diary into context, we must first look at Lincoln. Let's start with the Lincoln myths. The mythic Lincoln was self-made. He was born to humble circumstances and he rose because of his own abilities and efforts. This part of the myth is largely true. Lincoln had hardly any formal schooling. As a young person, he worked on a hard scrabble subsistence farm, but he moved up in the world. He worked hard at his professions, law and politics. He became a fluent speaker, a legendary raconteur, and a master of the written word. He developed a strong inner confidence in himself. But other aspects of the Lincoln mythology interweave fact and fiction to create the Lincoln legend. The mythic Lincoln hated slavery and spent his whole life waiting to strike a blow at it. Now, Lincoln certainly did see the wrongs of slavery, but before the war, he felt unable to do anything about them. He
He read the Constitution to mean that the federal government could not touch slavery in the states where it already existed. He and his fellow Republicans wanted to stop slavery from expanding, and they hoped that it eventually would disappear. But he did not expect to see that happen soon. At one point, Lincoln suggested that emancipation might take 100 years. Lincoln also concluded that the South had a constitutional right to recapture fugitive slaves. I confess, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and caught and carried back to their stripes and unrewarded toils, he wrote to a close friend, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. Lincoln mythology also obscures the key fact about his adult life. Political power mattered most to Lincoln much more than slavery. The real Lincoln was a career politician. For me and for him, it was a demanding task to marshal popular majorities toward worthy ends. It required skills and patience that most of us do not possess. It required you find allies who might not share many of your values and whom you might not like. It required pretense. Lincoln was deeply committed to Henry Clay's Whig Party. Whigs appealed to people who believed in education, self-improvement, self-discipline, and who wanted economic development in a more humane social order. This is the younger Clay, a beautiful painting. This is an actual photograph uh, uh, late in life. Um, the, uh, uh, the hard struggles in Congress, I guess, had worn him down. Um, in any case, um, the problem with Lincoln was that the Whig Party appeared fated to remain a permanent minority in Illinois. Too many Illinois settlers were like his father, Thomas Lincoln, um, people who lacked the drive to make something of themselves and get ahead. They made Illinois a democratic state. Only in certain districts in Illinois could a Whig compete for a seat in Congress, and there were so many aspirants you had to wait your turn and then rotate off. That's how it was that Lincoln served just a single term in the U.S. House between 1847 and 49. He did not again set foot in Washington until his train arrived, um, uh, the secret train uh, slipping through Baltimore uh, just a few days ago uh, on February the 23rd. Because Whigs were outnumbered in Illinois overall, Lincoln could not aspire realistically uh, for any big statewide office such as U.S. Senator or Governor. But all this suddenly began to change in 1854. Two earthquakes shook the two-party system in which Henry Clay's Whigs competed against Andrew Jackson's Democrats. The first shock came in the form of a nativist backlash against foreign immigrants. People from Ireland and Germany had been swarming into the United States during the 1840s and early 1850s. The so-called know-nothing movement was fueled by a potent mix of anti-Catholicism, anti-liquor, support for Protestant-oriented common schools, and anxiety among native stock working men who feared that immigrants threatened their jobs. A new political entity, the American Party, or so it called itself, capitalized on these discontents. It surged to power in Massachusetts and Maryland while showing strong potential elsewhere. The American Party attracted some former Democrats and former non-voters, but the largest number, uh, numbers of its new recruits uh, were former Whigs. Then at the very moment in 1854, when Know Nothing's first burst to prominence, a second disruptive force arose. Democrats in Congress unwisely pushed through the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which invalidated the old Missouri Compromise 
and stirred alarm that free white labor would lose the West to a slave power conspiracy. Anti-Nebraska insurgents across the North vied with know-nothings to seize the political initiative. The anti-Nebraska movement included some free soil Democrats, but its largest component was former Whigs. So Lincoln's old Whig party was being torn apart. But rather than mourn its loss, he and other ambitious Illinois Whigs saw opportunity. Between 1854 and 1856, the brand new Republican Party coalesced. In Illinois and many other northern states, Republicans had greater voter appeal than Whigs. Illinois was home to many anti-Nebraska Democrats, often folks with New England roots, most of whom lived in northern Illinois. If most former Whigs could be drawn into the Republican fold and anti-Nebraska Democrats could be added, then the new party would be close to having a majority in Illinois. Abraham Lincoln became the key architect of the Illinois Republican Party. He reached out to former Democrats and especially to former Whigs. In private, he deplored anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant prejudices. But in public, he said nothing that might offend the many anti-slavery know-nothings whose support was essential for long-term Republican success. While he worked to woo nativists, Lincoln also built strategic alliances with German-American newspaper editors. He assured them that he would accept support only from former know-nothings who dropped their anti-immigrant agenda. Lincoln also was careful to cultivate the scant minority of Illinois residents with abolitionist leanings who saw slavery as an urgent moral problem. Thanks to the skills of people like Lincoln, the Republican Party emerged in 1856 as a serious competitor for national political power. Its presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, swept the upper north where anti-slavery sentiment was strongest. But Republicans fell short in the lower north principally because some old Whigs and Americans would not support them. So James Buchanan, a northern man with southern principles, became president. You can visualize what's going on with these maps here. Um, the green uh, are Democratic states, the red are Republican states. You can see that Fremont carried the upper north um, uh, but Buchanan carried almost all the states in the South, plus several big northern states, um, and that was enough to win. Uh, Republican managers looking ahead in 1856 and 60 uh, knew exactly where they needed to gain strength. Those three big states, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, that had been lost in 56, and looking ahead, if Republicans are going to actually be able to win national power, They've got to sweep the North because they're not going to win anything in the South. Two years later, in 1858, the Illinois Republican Party rewarded Lincoln for his hard work, his, his team spirit, and his gifts as a writer and speaker. It announced long in advance that he would be the party's candidate to challenge um, uh, Senator Douglas, the most talented and capable Democrat in the North. Lincoln's campaign against Douglas got national coverage. Here, parts of the myth are right on target. The seven Douglas-Lincoln debates, as they would have been called then, were indeed a memorable political spectacle. In the end, Republican legislative candidates actually polled several thousand more votes than did Democrats, but Douglas was able to hold his seat narrowly. Uh, remind you that back then, US senators were chosen by state legislatures, uh, not by popular vote. Nonetheless, Lincoln showed that he had strong appeal in one of the key states of the Lower North that Republicans had to win. 
1860, the stars were aligned for Lincoln. Republicans needed a candidate who could hold what the party had gained in 56 and win the three big states in the lower north that the party had lost that year. It helped Lincoln that his Illinois antagonist Douglas was the most popular Democrat in the free states and the odds on favorite for his party's presidential nomination in 1860. Lincoln had already shown that he could stand up to Douglas. Lincoln's victory in 1860 was in many respects predictable. He was nominated because he had the potential to carry the lower north, and he did that. His path to the presidency was eased because of the horrendous split in the Democratic Party. Pro-slavery extremists in the South hated Douglas, so Southern Democrats split their national party and nominated their own candidate, Vice President John C. Breckinridge. By displacing Douglas as the party's candidate in the South, Southern Democrats made it impossible for him to win electoral votes in the one part of the country where a Democrat had to win big to be elected president directly. Meanwhile, Lincoln prevented Douglas from holding on to the previously Democratic states in the lower north. You can see on the map here the red states um, that Lincoln carries the three states, Illinois, Indiana, and Pennsylvania, the Republicans had lost in 56. Uh, the reason they lost them in 56 was because quite a few folks in those states, uh, estimates are as many as 400,000 old Whigs and know-nothings, uh, had voted for the American Party. Just to remind you of this again. Um, the Americans are out of business by 1860, but their de facto successor called the Constitutional Union Party was on the ballot. Lincoln did what he'd been doing for the past six years. He played up his old longtime Whig allegiances to bring the old Whigs back on board and to enlarge the Republican base. The Constitutional Union Party pulled far fewer Northern votes in 1860 than Know Nothings had drawn in 1856. Did a little better down here in the South. Uh, you can see the orange states there, uh, three big Upper South states, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. Uh, the old Whigs in the so-called Constitutional Union Party actually carried those states. Um, in any case, um, Lincoln's inclusive instincts and his appeal to all factions of the Republican Party worked to his advantage. Uh, so he was elected president fair and square. Um, he swept the free states. He won a majority in the Electoral College. Uh, there's a couple of pie charts up here. Um, this is the electoral vote up here. Uh, Lincoln has a solid vote uh, majority in the Electoral College. Now, he doesn't have a popular vote majority, but you don't need a popular vote majority to be president. Uh, many presidents have not had it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson didn't have it in 1912. Um, Richard Nixon didn't have it in 1968. Uh, Bill Clinton didn't get it either time around, and George W. Bush didn't get it in 2000. Uh, what counts in presidential politics is the electoral vote and there is no doubt whatsoever that Lincoln was legitimately elected president. Uh, you can see the stars here. Uh, he not only got the three big states, he got more than that. Uh, he had a quite comfortable majority uh, in the Electoral College, even though he's running a little under 40% um, of the popular vote. During 1860, there was plenty of talk in the South about how Lincoln's election as president would be an intolerable insult and that the South would break up the Union rather than submit to a black Republican. Lincoln was an astute observer and he was perfectly aware of these threats. But he and other Republicans discounted them as election year grandstanding designed to bluff and intimidate Northern voters 
by making them worry that a vote for Lincoln would cause trouble. In retrospect, of course, it's plain that Lincoln and the Republicans badly underestimated the extent of Southern estrangement. It quickly became apparent in November and December that the 1860 election triggered the most dangerous crisis the country had ever faced. What was often called an epidemic or fit of madness seized the lower South. Seven states led by South Carolina refused to accept Lincoln's victory. Instead, they sundered their ties to the Union. And by the time Lincoln was inaugurated as president on March 4, the seceding states had already met in Montgomery, Alabama to organize the Confederate States of America, the government of a separate Southern nation. What was Lincoln to do? He understood that the oath that he took upon assuming office to mean that he was president of the entire country, that is, all 34 states. So he could not accept secession. He specified in his inaugural address that the Union remained both perpetual and unbroken. The question was, could anything be done to correct the situation short of war? Lincoln and most fellow Northerners hoped that was the case and that the people of the Deep South would soon come to their senses and reconsider their rash actions. The situation in the eight slave states of the Upper South, um, the diagram here shows you the uh, division of the Upper South into what's called the Middle South and the Border South, um, appeared to offer Lincoln some grounds for hope. Two-thirds of white Southerners lived in the Middle South, Border South, as you see it on this map here. Um, and in those states, uh, there was a big turn against secession, uh, especially in February 1861. Um, without these states, a Confederate nation confined only to the Deep South had scant chance of success. The Unionists in the Upper South, fearing that war could erupt at any moment, worked desperately to diffuse the impasse, preserve the peace, and persuade the Lower South to reconsider. They hammered away at the idea that disunionists endangered slavery the very thing they claimed to treasure. Unionists insisted that slavery was secure in the Union. Break up the Union, however, and slavery would face all kinds of risks. Lincoln's election was a cause for regret, Southern Unionists argued, not a cause for suicidal overreaction. Lincoln's incoming Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, was in close touch with the leading anti-secessionists from the Upper South. Few, if any, of their names will be familiar today, but they were in a key position in early 1861. Uh, the people that Seward is uh, working with behind the scenes, uh, probably first and foremost, George W. Summers of Charleston uh, in what was then part of the enlarged Virginia that existed uh, before the Civil War. Um, Summers um, and John B. Baldwin from Stanton in Augusta County uh, were the two leading um, spokesmen for the Unionists in the Virginia Convention, which had been elected in early February. Uh, and the popular vote against secession in Virginia was thunderous. Uh, east of the Blue Ridge here, it divided about evenly. Uh, but west of the Blue Ridge, where more than half the people in Virginia lived at the time, the margin against secession was about five to one. And so the convention was dominated by these anti-secessionists uh, led by Summers, uh, and Baldwin. A few of the other folks uh, that are key to the story here, uh, the Dean of the U.S. Senate, John Jordan Crittenden, uh, he's still there uh, in 1861. He'd first been there way back in 1817. 
uh, quite a senior gentleman uh, doing his darndest behind the scenes to try and come up with some sort of compromise ground on which people could stand. Uh, John A. Gilmer, a congressman from North Carolina, actually offered a seat in Lincoln's cabinet, uh, but in the end declined it, uh, fearful that uh, this thing might turn out badly after all, uh, which was the truth. Uh, Robert Hatton, uh, a fellow I featured on the cover of uh, my first book, uh, Reluctant Confederates, uh, an outspoken anti-secessionist who had the most unkind things to say about the folks down in the Deep South, but who, when push came to shove uh, in April, decided to go with the Confederacy uh, and ends up uh, as a brigadier uh, who's killed outside of Richmond uh, in May 1862. There's a hitch here, however. The Upper South also rejected the use of force against the Lower South. Many of the Upper South's so-called Unionists said they would fight alongside their Southern brothers if war broke out, just as Hatton did. As historian David Potter memorably observed, the Upper South was in a position similar to that of a moderate and powerful nation which has made an unlimited alliance to protect a weak but belligerent neighbor and which has thus placed its own peace at the discretion of its trigger-happy ally. So Lincoln was caught on the horns of a Donala. On the one hand, he hoped for peaceful reunion and his instincts all led him in this direction. That would suggest waiting for the Deep South's sober second thought. And if Lincoln were to hold the Upper South, which he was eager to do, he could not risk war. On the other hand, what was going on in the Deep South looked more permanent every day. Very little evidence suggested that the Deep South wished to retrace its steps. Doing nothing looked more and more like acquiescing in peaceable separation and reducing the Union to 27 states at best. So Lincoln ultimately decided that he could not voluntarily surrender Fort Sumter. Now, let me circle back to the diary. The diary repeatedly introduces previously concealed information that was corroborated only after its publication in 1879. It contains precise details regarding the struggle to shape Lincoln's cabinet, which was a huge tussle. Its segments on the writing of Lincoln's inaugural address 150 years ago tomorrow include key information that was not then part of the public realm most notably the role played by Seward in persuading Lincoln to make a whole bunch of last minute revisions to make it more acceptable to Southern Unionists. The diarist also shed light on Seward's secret promise in mid-March 1861 to George Summers, the leading Virginia Unionist, uh, the head of the Union bloc at the Virginia Convention, promising that Fort Sumter soon would be evacuated. So the substance of the diary simply cannot be dismissed, but the diary was not a diary. It was a memoir, probably written shortly before it appeared in print in 1879. The word diary was intentionally misleading. Its author proves to have been a New York journalist, William Henry Hurlbert. He was assisted by his longtime friend, uh, Sam Ward, uh, the king of the lobby. Um, Hurlbert was acclaimed in his lifetime as the most brilliant talent in the New York press and the only artist among American journalists. He pretended to have been a diarist who never existed and he covered his tracks so well that he escaped detection until now. Hurlbert's alleged diary suggested that Northern Democrats, conservative Republicans, and Southern Unionists had acted more responsibly in early 1861 than extreme men on either side 
who blindly stumbled into the abyss. He swam against the dominant tide of post-war Northern public opinion in his lifetime, and his outlook now appears a mile off base, at least to Northern audiences. Today, many Americans glorify Lincoln and celebrate the war because of its twin achievements, the restoration of the Union and the abolition of slavery. But the diary of a public man reminds us of things that must be included in any serious history of the secession winter. Hurlburt knew that Lincoln still hoped to preserve the Union without war when he took office on March 4. He knew that Seward and Douglas were the two most formidable advocates of a peace policy. He knew that the top newspapers reported in mid-March that the federal government was about to relinquish Fort Sumter. In short, the diary shows how the situation appeared in March 1861 and why it still seemed that the crisis might be resolved without war. Could Lincoln have preserved the peace and preserved the Union? As we have seen, Seward, his Secretary of State, said that it was still possible. Seward and his Southern Unionist friends wanted out of Sumter. They would sacrifice the fort, which was important only as a symbol. It had no military function with the rest of Charleston Harbor in hostile hands. But Lincoln decided that it was essential to try and hold the symbol. With hindsight, we are almost certain to say that you couldn't have both peace and union and that war was necessary to preserve the union. Lincoln finally judged that trying to secure a peaceful reunion would instead lead to peaceful separation. And rather than accept that, he decided to risk war, albeit under circumstances that obliged the Confederates to fire the first shot, if a first shot was to be fired. Lincoln's Sumter decision was a judgment call, not a test of patriotism or manhood. Nobody knew in advance whether the Union could be restored through war or how terrible the ordeal would prove to be. Just as Seward feared, war pulled the Middle South and Lower South together. An intensely nationalistic Southern nation suddenly took shape. It had twice the manpower of the original Confederacy. It was far more dangerous and it put up a ferocious fight. Only when the war had grown to proportions that could not have been imagined in April 1861 did Lincoln take the huge step of enlarging Union war aims to include abolition as well as reunion. The great historian David Potter cautioned us against the familiar but misleading image of Lincoln as a man following the well-marked path of destiny to abolish slavery. Instead, Potter wisely observed, Lincoln was reluctant to become an emancipator and the conflict which immortalized him was a conflict which he had believed he could avert. I agree with Potter. Lincoln played the cards he was dealt, and he played them astutely. But he was not clairvoyant, and he did not know in advance what fate had in store for him. Thank you. I welcome your questions. Somebody has to break the ice. <laughs> Here comes a microphone for you. Did you uh, confirm that, uh, and I think you said that Lincoln had a, did have a passionate desire to end slavery, hated slavery from New Orleans 
uh, when he was 19 years old and just had no way of uh, fighting the, the, the force uh, until later. And he often said, I, I walk slow, but I never walk backward. And so he um, didn't think the country was ready, didn't see any way to, uh, you know, to, to uh, stop slavery for, you know, by political means and, and was uh, reluctant to try to, but thought it would destroy the Union. Uh, so he was willing to wait until he thought the country was ready. And you may have said that, but I just wanted to see what your take was. No, you, you, you've got it exactly right. Uh, uh, Lincoln uh, deeply disliked slavery, um, but he was a constitutional conservative who did not believe that he had the power, nor did he have the intention to touch slavery in the states where it already existed. He and the Republicans made it very clear that they thought the expansion of slavery should be stopped, but we're talking about regions out to the west where it didn't rain very much, uh, and where we're not likely to have had anything like uh, plantation slavery ever going there. Uh, it was more a kind of symbolic thing that the Republicans were contesting against, though some of my colleagues in the profession would say that the South also had its eye uh, on a Southern Caribbean empire, uh, which might have been better for slavery. But if that's the case, uh, why is the South knifing Stephen A. Douglas in the back? Uh, Douglas was an eager expansionist, uh, one of the very out-in-front guys that wanted Cuba, and yet the South announces in 1860 that Douglas is a heretic. Uh, they split the party uh, rather than nominate him. So I think what you said about Lincoln is exactly on target. Um, and uh, as evidence, uh, in his inaugural address 150 years ago tomorrow, uh, Lincoln specified uh, that he could readily accept an amendment to the Constitution that had just been passed by two-thirds majorities of both houses of Congress with the key support behind the scenes of Seward, uh, which specified that Congress had no authority to touch slavery in the states where it already existed. This was a peace offering from the moderates in the Republican Party to the South. We will not touch slavery in the states where it already exists. We will put it in the Constitution and the secessionists in the Deep South said, forget about that, we're leaving. Uh, and by doing that, they did the one thing that in the near term or the medium term uh, could have hurt slavery. Uh, Lincoln had, didn't like slavery, but had no plan uh, other than this sort of long-run hope that eventually white Southerners would come around to realize uh, that slavery was an inefficient system, a poor way to get the work done, uh, and that, uh, but it would, it would ultimately depend on them to decide to give up slavery, that the federal government had no power to touch it. Thank you. Yes. I think we have a person down here. Do we get a microphone? Here comes a microphone. Okay, the, the big question is, how did you solve the mystery that you know that who wrote these diaries after 100 years, almost? The, uh, the key to cracking the mystery was um, similarities in writing style. Uh, the, the diary um, uh, is written by somebody who has a, a, a remarkable uh, gift for putting words on paper. Um, and uh, to make a long story short, it was originally a student of mine uh, who stumbled into the fact that this uh, uh, very talented journalist uh, before the age of 30, he wrote the editorials for the New York Times. 
Um, now, the Times wasn't quite as big a deal then as it is today, but still uh, not a usual assignment for a young whippersnapper under 30. Um, and then for political disagreements, he moved out, and uh, for a long time he works for a newspaper that's a very big deal called the New York World, and he's eventually the editor of that paper. And uh, a former student of mine spotted these remarkable similarities uh, between the, uh, the prose of the diary uh, and the stuff this guy wrote. Uh, and we also got the help of a statistician uh, who practices the, uh, the secret arts of something called stylometry, uh, which attempts to kind of identify the, uh, the nature of uh, uh, the writing style of, of pieces whose authorship is in dispute. And the stylometry, stylometry stuff works out very nicely, too, and also points directly to Hurlburt. But I, I go with the old-fashioned stuff, which is the similarity in writing style. And I also go with the story of who this guy was. He's an unusual character who was both northern and southern. Um, his uh, dad was a, uh, a New Englander who, nonetheless, was a school teacher down in Charleston, South Carolina. So young Hurlbert is born down in Charleston, and when he arrives at Harvard College as a young guy in the 1840s, he's thought of as a Southerner. And so he's got a very sectionally sort of bifurcated, uh, you know, many of his friends in college are becoming abolitionists. Uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson becomes the leader of a black regiment uh, during the Civil War, uh, but Hurlbert, um, is somebody who, when he sees the crisis coming to a head, pulls back. Uh, he'd actually been a supporter of Fremont back in 56, but he's a Douglas supporter in 1860, and he's doing his darndest behind the scenes to try and uh, uh, stop this train wreck from occurring. Uh, so the whole point of the diary is that sensible people tried to stop the train wreck, and it was his kind of unusual way of making a point uh, not by writing what you might call a straightforward historical narrative, but by uh, concocting this uh, outrageous and yet very successful diary. I mean, everybody was talking about it and writing about it after it appeared, and many historians who know as much as you could know about this period uh, have accepted this thing as real, and even people like, say, the late David Donald, uh, uh, who announced in one of his books, no, we shouldn't use the diary, you turn right around 20 pages later, he's using the diary uh, because the anecdotes in it are just, uh, you know, too good to, uh, to pass up. And perhaps the most famous of all is this thing that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, is Douglas holding Lincoln's hat uh, at the inaugural? Well, we do have a newspaper report from a week later to that effect, and that too would appear to be, uh, you know, something that uh, isn't just somebody's imagination. And I have come to conclude that even though this diary is full of a bunch of uh, fictitious uh, ho-ho-ho uh, where he's creating this persona of a diarist that never existed, um, Hurlbert himself never shook hands, I'm sure, with Abraham Lincoln, uh, but Sam Ward lived next door to Seward uh, and provided a way in which people could secretly confer with Seward uh, in Sam Ward's uh, uh, back kitchen and Sam Ward was an ear-to-the-ground kind of guy, and I think that uh, a great deal of legitimate material found its way into this so-called diary, and so I tend to credit the material there because uh, much of it has uh, proven to be, uh, uh, you know, stuff when it was printed was ahead of the times. 
We didn't know in 1879 that Seward had been deeply involved in rewriting Lincoln's uh, inaugural uh, in the couple of days before the inauguration. We now know that. The documents came out uh, because uh, uh, Lincoln's private secretaries, Hay and Nicolay, uh, did a huge biography of Lincoln that came out in the late 80s, and then the whole story of, of Seward's uh, role in uh, demanding that Lincoln wake up. If you, if you deliver this inaugural address, you're going to lose Virginia right now. Do you really want to use, lose Virginia? Lincoln's answer in, in, uh, uh, April, in, in March 1 or 2 was, gee, I don't want to lose Virginia. Uh, how do you say I ought to rewrite this thing? Uh, what's this lovely thing at the end about the angels of our better nature? Okay, let's go for it. Uh, Lincoln's heart was still, you know, with the idea that somehow this thing could be patched up and a war could be averted. Um, and uh, uh, he's holding on to that hope uh, as of March 4. A long-winded answer, but a great question. <laughs> Me? Yes. Could you describe Lincoln's intelligence, uh, his ability, and what did he read? <laughs> How well did he read, uh, for example, when he was 10 or 25? What was he reading? Lincoln was the most unschooled uh, American president who's ever held office. Um, I would say he's also, uh, in many ways, the most gifted uh, president who's ever held office. He is, without doubt, uh, the most uh, gifted prose stylist um, uh, ever to be president. Um, he, he read deeply in things that mattered to him. Um, uh, when he sat down to write his inaugural address, uh, he wanted a couple of key documents at hand. He wanted uh, the debates between Daniel Webster uh, and Robert Hayne. Uh, he wanted Andrew Jackson's uh, response to nullification in 1832. Uh, he was deeply grounded uh, in the history uh, of American politics. Um, he was, uh, among other things, somebody who uh, took great delight in the theater to his ultimate sorrow. Uh, he would read and reread uh, Shakespeare. Uh, he would keep his private secretaries up at night uh, as he would uh, read uh, segments of Shakespeare that particularly appealed to him. Uh, I'm sure it was a way in part of just uh, relieving some of the tensions of the situation that he found himself in as president. Uh, but uh, I would say his intellect was of the absolutely highest order uh, despite the lack of any formal credentials. Uh, and I would reemphasize, as I did in response to the uh, first question, uh, that Lincoln was, uh, his own understanding of himself was he was a constitutional conservative who had neither the power nor the inclination to touch slavery, and he was amazed at what was going on down in the Deep South. How could they possibly be doing this? How could they believe that we're out uh, to attack slavery. Uh, he, uh, one of the reasons, of course, the Republicans sort of sleepwalk into this crisis because they didn't really believe that anybody could actually think uh, because they had said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times that even though they didn't like slavery, even though they didn't want it to expand, that they had no, uh, no power or intention of hurting it in the states where it already existed. White Southerners would have to do that on their own. The question has to do with whether our condition was fact or fiction. I read somewhere 
some time ago reference to Lincoln and depression. Was it depression over the idea of war, depression over uh, the idea of slavery, or was there a psychological depression, or is all this a myth? My reading of the evidence is that Lincoln had a pretty strong equilibrium uh, that, uh, uh, like any of us, he had his bad moments. Uh, in his young life, there was a certain amount of turbulence. Uh, he came up from particularly unpromising origins, uh, and uh, uh, he was moving ahead enough uh, as a young guy in his 20s that he proposed to and ultimately married a young woman from a much higher uh, social status. He was always conscious of the fact that he was climbing uh, out of total obscurity. Um, uh, but uh, I would say that, that he had a, a, a tremendous work ethic. Um, he got up in the morning and he went at it until late in the evening. Uh, he, uh, he did his best under circumstances that uh, nobody could have imagined uh, at the time he took office. Um, he, of course, has very little direct military experience, uh, but he becomes a very uh, kind of accomplished uh, big-picture analyst uh, of the military situation. And when you read his letters, you'll find that he frequently is making very sensible, pointed suggestions to his generals uh, about the big-picture sort of things uh, that they ought to keep in mind uh, about the fighting of the war. Um, and while all that's going on, he's got uh, an enormous kind of political struggle that's ongoing from the moment he took office. Uh, he, uh, uh, his political skills uh, ultimately are, uh, are uh, absolutely central uh, to his ability to kind of um, keep his balance and keep his feet. Um, you, you portray Lincoln as being so reluctant and reticent um, about the situation at the time. And uh, I believe there is, there's a letter, it might be in the archives in South Carolina, that proves that he knew exactly what he was doing and that he would provoke the beginning of the war by sending the warships into Charleston Harbor. I just wondered what historians have concluded about that. I mean, he, this, this letter, says that he states he knows what will happen, and yet he went ahead at the time and did this, knowing that this would start the war. Nobody knew at the time what would happen. I, I think you're correct that Lincoln understood that there was a very high likelihood that by sending the relief expedition down to Sumter uh, that it would be fired upon. Um, um, though he was also determined that if there was a first shot to be fired, that the other guys were going to have to fire it. He sent a letter to the governor of South Carolina saying that uh, I would send relief and provisions only um, and would not do more than that uh, <clears throat> unless uh, this force was attacked. Uh, but the larger question that your question, uh, or the larger matter your question points to is who knew what would happen uh, after uh, shooting actually started uh, in mid-April 1861, uh, and the only honest answer to that is nobody knew what would happen. Um, I, I tried to suggest in my presentation that this was a leap into the dark 
uh, my diarist or alleged diarist, memoir writer, would say that this was a wild and reckless leap in the dark uh, and that Lincoln should have followed Seward's advice and waited longer and hoped that somehow the Upper South might have, or that the Upper South Unionists might have become stronger and might eventually have been able to stare down the secessionists in the Deep South. But the war that ultimately develops is totally beyond the imagination of anybody at the time. Uh, this, is, this is a war that's totally out of sight from our perspective today. Um, over 600,000 people are killed in the American Civil War in a country that has a population uh, about one-tenth of the United States today. If we were in a war today, that would be a war that would kill six million people. Six million people. 3,000 people died at the World Trade Center. Uh, we're talking about thousands of times the deaths of the World Trade Center. Um, could anybody have foreseen this? No. Um, it's, it's, what happens is that rival nationalisms collided. There was no Southern nation in 1859 or 1860. There sure the hell was by the last week of April, 1861, and it was a bigger Southern nation than the one that had organized at uh, Montgomery uh, back in February. And it was a big enough Southern nation that had enough of the kind of popular uh, enthusiasm behind it uh, to put up an absolutely hellacious fight. Uh, you know, you've seen all the numbers. Uh, the South uh, is, in all kinds of measurable respects, at a disadvantage. Not as much population, not as much material resources, and so on. But um, there have been times in American history, such as the American Revolution, when the weaker of two contestants uh, ultimately secures independence. And, uh, nobody should assume that this thing was bound to turn out the way it did. One more question. Do we have one more? Yes. A guide at the home uh, outside of uh, where the White, the White House where uh, Lincoln spent a lot of time during the Civil War by the soldier's home yes. informed that Lincoln read the Bible every day. Uh, is that the way you see it? And if so, what was his motivation for doing that? I do, not, I do not think I would credit that. Uh, Lincoln was deeply informed uh, by, the, uh, uh, by the King James Bible. Uh, it was probably the, uh, the first book that he uh, read intensely. Uh, his prose is filled with uh, uh, biblical imagery uh, and language. Uh, but Lincoln was not, in any sense, a conventionally religious person. He never belonged to a church. Uh, there is plenty of evidence that he became more inwardly spiritual uh, during the war, um, and you cannot read the second inaugural address uh, without realizing that this is somebody uh, for whom the whole ordeal that uh, the country has just pa passed through uh, understands what has happened uh, in, in, uh, uh, in terms that can only be explained uh, um, uh, the judgments of a just God, uh, the, uh, uh, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We have no right to complain. Uh, both North and South have sinned and have paid a terrible price for their sins. I mean, that's not the language of somebody who is, uh, who, is uh, um, some, who lacks religious belief, but Lincoln is not a conventionally religious person who would sit down uh, on a regular basis, I think, and read the Bible. 